Hello, and welcome back to Reformed. Today we'll be talking about one of the most exciting and most difficult aspects of the criminal justice system, reentry. In this episode, we'll get to hear some of my favorite interviews from this project and explore the difficulties a person faces when thrown from the controlled world of prison back into the hectic realities of daily life with the added difficulty of a criminal record. Anxious, nervous, and excited all at the all at the same time, all in the same whim. And um it was it was, you know, just thinking about it kinda still makes me a little you feel butterflies now. Um you know, it was just it's just being back, you know, just being back in society, you know looking and you know you weren't you were not confined was uh something that you know humbling uh humbling breathtaking to know that you're not you know you you can look up and you don't have to see barbed wire you know i used to we used to do that when we used to walk through you know through the uh through the institution we used to walk through the institution and just look up sometimes you'll see stars but if you Tilt to your left a little bit, you know that's a bar right there. You know that's a gate right there. You know you only can go but so far. And to finally look up and not see that after years is is uh, you know is is kind of like an unexplainable feeling. I remember sitting in a waiting cell for five hours just wishing they would let me out. <laughs> I was pacing. You know, I was thinking about everything that I learned while I was incarcerated. You know, now I have to put it into action. Now's the time for me to be the person that I said I wanted to be in that I knew I could be. And it was an underlying fear that um, because for me, uh, I always, I never really grew up wanting to be a doctor. I didn't have a lot of role models, uh, positive black men in my life or positive white men in my life. Um, I always was in a community full of drug dealers guys that was gangsters and those are the people I looked up to. So I grew up that way. So the person that I am now is, is, is even though it's me, it's the child that my mother raised is still new to me because me working and going to school is new. Me being optimistic about everything or just persevering through everything and, and, and controlling my anger. All of this is new to me. So in a sense, it was a fear that, you know, was this just me being incarcerated? You know, when I get let out into society, am I going to be able to still hold on to the values that 
you know, I, I, I took on while incarcerated. So it was that fear. It was the fear of failure, you know. But um, they finally let me out, and I felt like a fish out of water. Like, it just was abnormal. Like, by me being locked up that long, it just... It's an indescribable feeling. It's, it's, it's you, you so joyful that you out, but you, it's like you pushed out to nothing in a sense. You know, I had family support, of course, but for years I wasn't, for the years that I was incarcerated, I wasn't really prepared to re-enter society in a sense, mentally, emotionally, or physically. You know, they just throw you out when you when it's time for you to leave. And it was just, it was crazy. I remember, this is kind of funny, but on my ride home, my brother was riding me. Like, I never knew anything about face uh, Facebook, the uh, live he put me on Facebook Live, and I felt so like it was it was uncomfortable for me because I just felt like a million people was just staring at me, and I and and I felt so uncomfortable. I like man, I don't want to be on the camera. Like, you know, uh, still to this day, I'm I'm very antisocial. I I, I had problems socializing with people. Uh, I'm getting better at it, but I'm very uh very quiet I stay to myself I kind of still stay in that corner that I used to stay in in the day room you know whenever I'm somewhere I, I just kind of blend with the scenes and just kind of watch everything so uh, prison has definitely affected me in a lot of ways but uh, it, it, it was very uncomfortable when I first got out You just heard from Saquon Merritt and Marcus Lilly about their experiences with reentry. Saquon R. Merritt is a justice reform advocate, entrepreneur, businessman, and formerly incarcerated person. Marcus Lilly is a college student, community outreach coordinator for the nonprofit Coalition of Friends, mentor, public speaker, formerly incarcerated person, and self described advocate for transformation. Reentry is a term used to describe the transition someone makes when they leave incarceration and return to their community. More than 650,000 people reenter society from state and federal prisons each year, and more than 9 million reenter society from local jails. For many individuals, especially those who have been incarcerated for long periods of time, reentry can be an exhilarating and nerve-wracking process. However, returning to society can be extremely difficult, not only on an emotional level, but also because there are huge structural barriers that prevent re-entering citizens from long-term success. An extended stay in prison represents a significant departure from what you or I might think of as daily life. Many of the concerns facing re-entering people are very simple, but difficult to address. For instance, after several years in prison, a person's driver's license expires. 
They may even have outstanding tickets and violations on that license. When they re-enter, they may need to reapply for a driver's license and address any outstanding issues on the license, which usually involves a hefty fee. They might also need to find a car and a way to the DMV in order to retake a driving exam. For many people, that fee, the difficulty of finding a car, and lack of a driver's license can make or break life after incarceration. When you can drive, you have freedom of movement to see loved ones or to make it to a new job. Eliminating or reducing the fee to obtain a new license would seriously improve the reentry experiences of many Americans. But prolonged isolation from society in the 21st century also represents a unique challenge. Because technology keeps changing so rapidly, people who are incarcerated for long periods of time can struggle to adjust to new tech when they re-enter society. Email, smartphones, even new computer interfaces can be unintuitive and difficult to master, but are key to modern social life and employment. When prison time prevents people from keeping up-to-date with technological skills, it imposes a significant barrier to their long-term well-being. I had the chance to speak with Marcus Lilly about the difficulties posed by technological literacy when trying to find employment after a long period of incarceration. The online thing was very difficult for me, very nerve-wracking, because I, you're not getting any computer training inside. You're not really, um, I think the phrase is a techno-savvy. Right. Uh, it's not a lot of programs. It's not a lot of computer training programs inside. So I was blessed to be in a college program and we had laptops where you kind of get, you know, uh, I guess the the average computer skills where you, you learn how to use Word, um, you learn how to type. Um, research those type of basic skills. So I, I was blessed to be in that type of program where I kind of learned some of them, but um, yeah, it was just like I felt like the employee wouldn't be able to get to know me through this online application the same way that he would get to know me face-to-face. No. Through the online application, I felt like my record would stick out more versus me sitting in front of them and them possibly being able to see that I am not just my record. You know, I'm beyond my record. You know, here's a guy that's really trying to change. You know, you really can't, you can't really get that through to a person doing an online application. So, you know, that was, I had that underlying thought doing these applications that, you know, I would never get a job because of my record and I, I wasn't going to lie on the application about it so that process went on i didn't get in actually i didn't get my job through an online application i got my job through a reference from one of the professors that was that is in the university of baltimore my history professor but it took me i just started working it took me um i think i've been home maybe Five months now it took me four months to get a job, and that's kind of that's kind of quick for the average person that's um gets out. I I I've heard I've heard of people you know 
Not getting a job for a whole year. In previous episodes, we've talked about how people held in state and federal facilities are often moved far away from their homes, even moved to facilities in other states. In fact, research shows that 63% of incarcerated people are held further than 100 miles from their families, and distance from home poses one of the greatest factors in determining whether or not an incarcerated person will receive a visit from family or friends in a given month. When a state chooses to build a prison, they also typically place the facility far away from major cities and population centers, exacerbating the difficulty of visits. This geographical isolation makes it very difficult for a person to stay in contact with friends, families, and other social networks. These social networks are the very same connections that a person relies on when they come back to society. Saquon told me about the support networks he had leaving incarceration and how important they were. I got I got um, support. A lot of support came from my old professors. Uh, a lot of support came from my old professors. Um, I, I, I had a big unit. Um, professors, uh, family, as I said, I can't say uh, how many times, you know, my my fiance, my my mother, uh, even even as I talk about you know my son, just him being my son, mm-hmm. you know that was a support um, because just looking at him, I I, I knew that you know I, I had to do what I had to do, yeah. you know to be a, to be a father for him, so that that support that you know kept me up, yeah. you know kept me up kept me uh, motivated kept me every day you know, looking and search for employment, uh, accomplishing my goals that I had, uh, and ultimately, you know, being successful, uh, transitioning, you know, as a, you know, as a positive citizen mm-hmm. in this society. Um, yeah, those, those, those have been my, uh, those have been my supports. Um, other, others, you know, formerly incarcerated. Uh, I got a, a brother, uh, brother named um, Saladin, who was like a mentor to me, um, you know, uh, Abu, different, different, different guys that I looked up to um, in prison that supported me from the other side, you know, let me know, you know, just take it one day at a time, um, you know, things, things, things will be all right, man, just keep, you know, keep going, keep moving forward. Um, like I said, the professors, Mark Howard, uh, Amy Rosa, you know, they, they, they all supported me from Goucher, Georgetown. You know, they always called and said, hey, say, come on, look, we got this going on. We're doing this. We're doing that. Uh, you know, as you know, Dr. Miller, um, you know, it's, it's just awesome, man. You know, mm-hmm. so they, they've, they've been there just to, you know, push me. When a person leaves incarceration, they face a variety of extremely practical concerns. Where will I be sleeping? How can I support myself? What will I do now? Having a family and close support network provides a temporary solution to many of these problems, but there are larger government policies that complexify life with a criminal record. I spoke with Joshua Miller adjunct professor at Georgetown's Department of Philosophy and director of education at Georgetown's Prisons and Justice Initiative about many of these structural barriers. So I have worked with some returning citizens, but not as many as I would like. 
Um, the facility that I worked at was um, m- medium slash maximum security, which meant that uh, people who were incarcerated there were incarcerated for pretty serious crimes and had pretty long periods of incarceration. Um, that meant that most of the people I worked with were not released in the last six years. But I have known maybe 10 guys who got released over that period of time. And the, the, the men who were released, you know, came out into the same world that everyone seems to encounter. They had um, a, an immediate black mark on their resumes because of time that they hadn't been employed in uh, official capacities or they were only employed by Maryland Correctional Enterprises. Um, they had the they had in many cases to report that they have a criminal record, um, and so they also had to figure out housing, um, get access to drug treatment programs, or um, otherwise sort of meet the state's expectations around remaining clean and sober. And they needed to find a job immediately, which they encountered these obstacles to getting. Um, so one of the things we're doing here at Georgetown is trying to create a new reentry program for, for D.C. residents coming back from federal facilities. Uh, and there I hope to meet many, many more re-entering, returning citizens, reentering prisoners. Saquon Merritt shared with me what was on his mind when he started his reentry process. Oh, man, I was thinking about, uh, thinking about, you know, family. Uh, Pretty much what was on my mind is uh, how I was going to transition, how I was going to um, implement the plans that I had, um, how I was going to implement the plans that I had of um, of being a productive citizen, being able to um, not only just survive, but be uh, successful. Um you know, I, I consider myself a, a, a leader in my family, and um, I know all of my aspirations, and uh, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, can I, can I really do it? You know, is, is, can I make it happen? You know, sometimes you have some, some doubts, but, you know, and then you're thinking, like, how am I going to implement it? You know, how am I going to make these plans happen? You know, mm-hmm. what? Then you you know you got the phone ringing. It's you know if your auntie's on the line, like, where is he? Where is he? You know what I mean? Just just different things going on. And then you got a snap to that. Then I'm thinking about my son and how we're gonna interact with each other. And um, you know, it's, it was just it was just a lot. But uh, for the most part, implementing my plans were the most important because I wanted to keep that that moment I wanted to keep that um feeling of <laughs> temporarily you know um being being free you know being free because even being free you know as coming home you know on, on parole uh on parole you know African American in in Baltimore city being free is not that's not absolute <laughs> you know that's not that's not you know, a, a thing that's that's a hundred percent. You know, because you have so many things over your head, so many black clouds, so many things that can happen, that can go wrong, that can set you back. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
I was just thinking about how I was going to, you know, how I was yeah. going to overcome that and keep and stay free, stay free, stay with my family. You know, as I had my fiance on the line with, you know, people in the background, where is he? I'm thinking about how are you, you know, Saquon Merritt, how are you going to stay home? Um, you know, one of the things, one of the most imperative things you staying home is uh, financial, uh, you know, financial stability. You have to be able to provide for yourself. Um, you know, one of the most important factors, you have to stay, you know, keep your faith. Um, you have to keep moving, stay motivated. Mm -hmm. So these are the different things that were, you know, inside of my mind as I was, you know, driving. Mm -hmm. He also told me a little bit about the first three days after his release. Okay, the first, first three days, um, I, I did a lot of preparation. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was incarcerated, you know, I had a, I had a resume already lined up. Uh, you know, I had I had everything that I that I did, the jobs that I worked while I was incarcerated. I was able to um, journalize them or docket them in my resume, mm -hmm. so you know, fit those in to try to fill the gap between those five years that I was gone. And um. So I, I threw I threw those in there. So I told my uh, my fiance and my mother about a week before I was scheduled to be released mm -hmm. to put my resume on Indeed mm -hmm. and career building these different websites. So um, and I told him to clean it up, you know, clean it up a little bit because I thought I thought it was just you know perfect. But you know I don't I don't know I've I've been gone for a while and you know they've been out here so they know the keywords mm -hmm. that employers are looking for. So you know they they did a couple of things for me, and uh, they they pretty much they put it up for me. And um, that that first day, as soon as I got in the car, opposed to the phone calls from family, I had three phone calls I had to make to employers that had already you know, called yeah. me from when I was on Indeed. So what I, what I had did was I put, obviously, because I didn't have a number, mm -hmm. my fiance's number was on the uh, on the resume. Mm -hmm. So they called her, and I told her, listen, just let them know when they call that I'm out of town. You you know, you have the phone right now. I'll be back in town this weekend. I'm really interested in the position. You know, things like that that kind of, you know, uh, articulately, you know, finesse that situation and keep that employer mm -hmm open for me until I got there. So uh, the first day, that's what I was doing. I mean, I mean, even when I got in the car, you know, I had those phone calls I had to make. She had it written down for me who was the employer, um, you know, and get back to them. Um, that uh, I drove to motor vehicles because I had to renew my license. Um, doing that, um, just I really wasn't worried about food my first day. You know, a lot of people, I, I thought about how much I wanted to eat and, you know, all that when I was locked up, I'm going to get this to eat. I'm going to get me a big burger. I'm going to get and those because it was all those other thoughts uh, that I aforementioned before was actually in my mind. Mm -hmm. So eating took a back seat. I'm talking about way back seat <laughs> like the like we hit a dag or a bus is all the way in the back. And um, it was all these other roles. Mm -hmm that went in front that had to be taken care of first. So um, uh, my first day I went to motor vehicles is obviously my license were important. Um, I was able to get my permit, but I found that I had to take the driver's test and everything all over, mm -hmm. which is another thing I want to speak about was kind of um, 
unnecessary because my my license had just expired, I think a year before. Mm -hmm. And I think the way they do it now, you can renew your license online. Mm -hmm. If I wouldn't have had that online access when I was incarcerated, um, I wouldn't have been able to. That wouldn't have been a hurdle Mm -hmm. that I didn't have to jump over. Now I have to find somebody with a vehicle. A vehicle can't have any check engine lights, any lights on. Uh, the vehicle has to have insurance. Obviously, what a vehicle should have, but a person incarcerated who's going to trust you, you know, mm-hmm. with their vehicle and to do that, and this has to be done during um, during the work work day. Yeah. Someone has to may have to take off. You have to schedule an appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was kind of that was kind of difficult. I didn't know that, so I wasn't able to take care of that. That's what I did the second day, and um, uh, that that kind of kind of threw my plans off because. My fiance was going out of town, and I wouldn't have a way to get where I needed to go at to try to get to these employers to get employment. So um, that was kind of my second day. But you know, I was able to you know with the you know with my family able to navigate through that. Um, you know, and the, the third day, you know, I, I spent with my family, spent with my son. You know, my fourteen year old son trying to engage with him. You know, when I left, he was nine. And I'm um, trying to engage with him, you know, my family, my mother, obviously my fiance. Um, and that, that's all going to be different for everybody because I have to relearn everybody all over again. Everybody, when I when I left, I was someone else five years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were someone else. Now five years, boom, I'm just planted right back in their, you know, in their circle, in their presence. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to learn if people's habits and ways they have to learn your ways so it's kind of like you know you, you and you don't want to rock the boat you know you don't want to throw people off but you want to be who you are Government policy bars people convicted of felonies from receiving public housing assistance. Since, as we discussed in episode 3, many people leave incarceration with very little money, and since people experiencing poverty are typically overrepresented in the criminal justice system, the lack of access to public housing assistance hits even harder. Moreover, both public and private landlords routinely discriminate against felons, criminal suspects, and their families when deciding to lease property. These policies represent a major barrier for returning citizens. In order to start a life outside of prison, they have to find a place to live. Saquon Merritt shared a story with me that speaks to the discrimination formerly incarcerated people can face when trying to find a place to live after their release. Time, uh, another time coming home, that um, housing was, you know, was kind of difficult. I remember one time I, I went to this place, you know, I was working and everything. And they was like, because of your record, you can't live here. But I said, I, I work. You know, I have a job. I have pay stubs. I can afford it. Uh, like, why can't your background? I said, well, if I get somebody to co-sign for me, they said, you can't even be on the property. Like, on the lease, nothing. So I said, wow. So I had to try to find, um, you know, private private uh, homeowners. Mm-hmm. Uh, they that were renting rooms out, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, they did a background check, obviously. And um, I found one that gave me a shot. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that time, I was able to find housing through that. But like I said, that was only because I was working, mm-hmm. um, you know, to try to get in uh, get in an apartment in, in, a, in a better neighborhood um, building. They have these um, criterias mm-hmm. that you have to fit. Mm-hmm. And you know, with a, with a record, you can't you can't fit that criteria, and um, I think that needs to be on a on a um, case by case basis instead of uh, just like a, a blanket decision yeah. on all all people that have been formerly incarcerated because you don't you don't know a person you know you don't know a person's story. A person could be you know in the transition to really being uh succeeding and just that blow mm-hmm. to uh, where you're going to to live at can throw you off your path having a criminal record can also prevent an individual from accessing food assistance and education programs like public housing food assistance and continuing education are some of the most valuable resources available to struggling americans Excluding formerly incarcerated people from those programs only raises the difficulty of reentry, which can already be an extremely difficult process. In all of these programs, applications typically include the question, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Applicants are then asked to tick the box either yes or no. Many states, approximately 29 to date, have adopted ban-the-box policies for employment, either government or private sector. Banning the box means that employers cannot ask applicants whether or not they've been convicted of a crime when hiring. These initiatives mark a significant step forward for the rights of formerly incarcerated people. However, ban the box policies also don't prevent employers and schools from conducting criminal background checks on applicants. These background checks are routine and frequently used to exclude formerly incarcerated people from employment. Expanding initiatives like Ban the Box will reduce some barriers to employment post-incarceration. Creating policies that expunge or seal criminal records, banning employers from checking arrest records, allowing participants to provide evidence of rehabilitation, or enabling formerly incarcerated people to review their background checks and ensure that the information is accurate, along with other similar initiatives, would further reduce the level of discrimination that many formerly incarcerated people face when seeking employment. Merely experiencing incarceration makes it hard to find a job. While many incarcerated people work within correctional facilities, listing Department of Corrections as an employer on a resume often makes it explicitly clear that a person has been incarcerated. Long-term removal from the general workforce makes it difficult both to build employable skills and to rise through the workforce. If a person doesn't work while incarcerated, They may also find it very difficult to explain long periods of unemployment on their resume without revealing that they were incarcerated and leaving themselves vulnerable to discrimination. The structure of imprisonment represents one of the largest stumbling blocks to long-term employment and success. The increasing length of prison sentences prevents incarcerated people from rising through the workforce and developing their skills. Moreover, Programming cutbacks in jails and prisons reduce the opportunities available for incarcerated people to build employable skills. Adjusting sentence length and expanding programming would be two extremely valuable reforms that could ease the reentry process. 
You might not expect it, but reentry is an area where conservative and liberal reformers find a lot of common ground. Want to learn more about the conservative case for reentry programming? Tune in to part two of this episode to learn about the common misconceptions about recidivism and the difficulties of finding employment with a criminal record.